Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and this is a special episode of Jacobin Radio today. We have just one guest, the British award-winning documentarian, Adam Curtis. He's with us to talk about his new film, Hypernormalization, and his view that the left must present a compelling alternative vision of the future. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Very pleased to have Adam Curtis with us. He's an award-winning documentary filmmaker, a journalist. He's won six BAFTAs for his films. Many of you have seen them, and he works for the BBC in London. His really acclaimed films include The Century of the Self, The Power of Nightmares, others as well. But we're here to talk about his new film, Hypernormalization. And in all of Adam's films, he goes back into the recent past with incredible footage to tell stories that lead the viewer to look again at the present day and try to make sense of it. I'm going to have Adam explain how he does that. Well, thank you, Adam, for joining us. Maybe we should just start by asking you what hypernormalization means. Well, it was a term, I found it in a book, a really good book by a Russian writer called Alexei Yurchak, who was describing what it was like to live in the Soviet Union in the 1980s, just before it all fell apart. And he described very well the strange mood of that time, which is that everyone in the Soviet Union knew that it wasn't really working. They knew that the people who ran the system, what was called the plan, didn't believe in it any longer. They knew the politicians didn't believe in it any longer. They knew the managers were corrupt and were looting the system. So everyone knew that it wasn't really working. But because there was no alternative. No one could imagine any alternative. They just accepted this as normal. And Yerchak invented this term for it, which he called it hypernormalization, which is, it's normal, but you know it's not quite right. And I thought, I'm not saying in any way that we're like the Soviet Union in the West, either your country or my country, but we may be at a similar sort of stage of perception of what's going on, which is that we have a sense that what is all around us, isn't quite right, is a bit odd, and sometimes quite fake, that ever since the financial crash of 2008, there has been endless revelations of corruption, but very few prosecutions. Mm. We fight wars that we are told are victories, which we know full well are defeats, and those who run the countries and ran the wars know full well that we know that they're defeats. It's as if we live in a fake world, but because there's no alternative, we just accept it. We shrug our shoulders and go, well, that's just normal. So I called the film Hypernormalization because I wanted to try and explain how we have got to that mood, why we feel like that. I think this is really interesting. And when I put my other hat on, I'm a professor of Soviet post-Soviet politics. So I really know this situation very well, where, in fact, the system wasn't working. Everyone knew it wasn't working. But in order to promote a form of stabilization, which is a very big theme in your film, there was kind of an alternate ideological reality that people had to pay at least lip service attention to. And this is fascinating that you say that now we are beginning in this phase here in the United States and also in Britain as we see what Brexit and then all of the problems in the Eurozone. But I want to go back. In your film, you point to, you can find the origins of neoliberalism and you go right to the mid-70s. Your footage is amazing when you go into New York and that beginning of the bankruptcy crisis and the attack on the New York public sector unions. And you chose 
chose that for a reason, and I wonder if you could tell us what was new and important about that particular assault that set the pattern for the next 40 years. Why I chose that point in the 1970s was because I think it was at the moment when two things happened. One was the politicians gave power away to other systems, and above all to finance, because they were faced by a growing complexity of economic crisis, of inflation, all the things that were characteristic of the 1970s. And that made politicians realize that their simple dream, that you could actually use politics to shape the world the way they wanted, just wasn't working. And in response to that, rightly or wrongly, they gave power to finance. Now, what finance brought with it was a very different view of the world from politics. Not just that it wanted to make money, but something far deeper than that. What drove it was this idea of stability. Because what finance is after, and what most managerial systems are after, is stability. Politics is much more about dealing with a dynamic world. What these systems wanted was to keep the world stable. And I just think that's a really interesting shift in power, because I think what I was trying to characterize in the film is how we have lived through a period which you see the roots of in the 1970s, but really flourished in the 1990s, which is a sense that all sorts of systems, whether they be finance, managerial, technocratic computer systems all really say to politicians, look, we can create a stable world for you. We can actually hold things and monitor things so that we can lend people money and we will know what the risks are. We can analyze all risks. We have the data to do it. And out of that comes this dream of stability, which I think began to crack, first of all, in 2008 with the financial crisis, and then in 2011 with the Arab uprisings. That's the period I'm trying to get at in this film, is that in a funny sort of way, we had our own technocratic dream given to us by finance and given to us by managerial systems, which is you could stabilize the world. And if you look at it, the word stability is the thing that everyone talks about right. from about 1992. Well, I'd love to go back just for a second, because I want to get to what you just said after I get why in the film. You thread back and show Kissinger and how Kissinger in the late 70s is approaching the dictator Hafez al-Assad and show Syria as a very main character throughout and thread it and end up with Trump. But back then, it's this kind of Syria as the real evil dictator and Gaddafi as the tool who can be invented and then uninvented and then reinvented and then killed. And it's a really fascinating way that you approach it. And maybe you could say why you chose to do that and what you see there in terms of, say, Kissinger's method of divide and rule and the kind of politics that stress stability, as you say, later on. Well, I think in a way, at the same time as the bankers were getting more and more power coming to them in New York in 1975, Kissinger was out there in Damascus negotiating with Hafez al-Assad, who is the father of the present president. And in a way, in a funny way, what Kissinger's vision was, was very similar to the vision that finance had of how you run the world. He saw the world rather as a sort of technical system. He was a, a ruthless pragmatist. He didn't have a sort of deep ideology. He just saw it as a system that you could manage and keep stable. And his view of the Middle East was that you divided and ruled. You divided and stabilized, would be more particular. And his idea was that you took Egypt, persuaded them to have a separate peace with Israel, and that would actually create a balance where you've divided the opposition to Israel within the Arab world, so much so that it's not perfect, but it's stable. That was his view. 
Assad was furious at this because what he said to Kissinger is, look, you are not solving any of the underlying problems. Above all, the problems of the relationship between Palestinians and Israel. You're just not dealing with it. And because of that, you're going to unleash demons. Well, and Kissinger saw it as a price you had to pay for stability. Right. And then you go through, and actually, I just want to ask you, because I love this methodology, and I want to know if you see a connection between the politics that were put into place by Kissinger, the rise of neoliberalism, and the switch to finance, and the foreign policy initiatives, and also, again, because you started with the attack on unions in New York, do you see that also as another part of the long-term decline of labor and, say, even third world revolt? You see, I have a problem with the phrase neoliberalism. I've never really used it myself because I think actually what we've been living through is something far more, what's the word, managerial. <clears throat> and I think it, you find it at all sorts of levels. And in my film, I'm trying to show that at the same time as the financial technocrats was coming in and saying, well, we'll just stabilise this city. And what we'll do is we'll bring in what they called austerity so we can have a predictable, managed system. At the same time as they were doing that, Kissinger was saying, look, I can create a stabilised Middle East. And I'm just going to go there. I don't care about the ideology. This is what we need in order to keep the world stable. Hmm. And in my mind, they're part of a project that began as the old liberal dream that you could use politics to transform the world, began to falter in the 1970s. Whether it could have done it or not, I don't know, but it faltered, it lost confidence, and a lot of the liberals lost confidence, and they gave power, they ceded power to these technocrats. And what I'm trying to argue in the film is that we've sort of lived through a period of technocratic planning Mm. done by the private sector, or what we see as the private sector. I'm not convinced that, really, we fully understood what finance and the modern managerial systems really are yet. And I think they're faltering themselves now. I'm speaking with Adam Curtis. He has a brand new documentary called Hypernormalization. Adam, you just said something very interesting because this does go back to even a discussion of the 1940s when you had the Burnham book on the managerial revolution and this idea as the Soviet Union was turning into this very bureaucratic, administrative, but somewhat collectivist nightmare, that you could have, just as you say, the technocrats, the managerial apparatus in charge everywhere, and on the basis of their understanding of how systems work, they could be relied upon to organize society. Is that where you're going with what's going on now? Because underneath all of that, you're showing a world in crisis and the absolutely overriding need to promote the notion that things aren't falling apart and that that will create stability. And you go into all kinds of things with the Internet and algorithms. Maybe in addressing this question, you could bring all of that in. Well, I think also the other really interesting thing, which I tried to focus on in this film, is that most traditional political documentaries either blame or praise those in power for what's happening. What I was trying to get at was, yes, of course, it was about politicians giving away power, but it was also about us. And above all, the liberals, they went along with it. They gave power away. They accepted it. They turned away from the dream of using politics to change the world and accepted the rise of finance. I mean, they may have grumbled about it, but they accepted it. And what I was trying to show in the film is that we all bear a sort of responsibility for retreating in the face of complexity, Mm. and creating a rather simplified view of the world, which is now coming back to bite us. And one of the big areas which I think the liberal mindset got trapped in, really from the late 1980s onwards, was that, okay, if you can't create democracy in the real world, what you can do is create a new kind of democracy in cyberspace, online. 
and there were a whole lot of internet utopians who promoted this idea from the late 80s onwards, was that actually what you have here is a network system which has no hierarchies, that you and I can connect as individuals and all of us can connect as individuals, and through systems of feedback, we can create, and again, here comes the word, a new kind of stability. Mm. So my argument is that actually we became part of that same ideology of managerial stability, because really what the internet is, is a feedback system of managing large groups. It doesn't have a picture of the future. It doesn't have any vision of the future. What it's really good at is assembling groups together, seeing common identities between them, and then servicing them in all sorts of different ways. And in the film, what I argue is that when the internet does what it does best in places like Tahrir Square in Egypt or in the Occupy movement in your country and my country, it's absolutely amazingly brilliant at pulling people together and assembling them as a group. What it then can't do mm-hmm. is tell them what kind of society they should build as an alternative to the society they think is wrong and corrupt. And that was the big mistake of the liberals, is that they bought into this idea of a new kind of democratic stability, thinking that actually it was a new kind of society, when actually it was just another aspect of this managerial, technocratic, stabilized world. And in doing that, they retreated, we all retreated, from actually having an imaginative vision of an alternative kind of society that you could build as something different from the growing corruption that we see around us at the moment and the growing inequalities. Well, this is really great because I think then toward the end of your film, when you do address the Arab Spring and going forward Occupy and the resistance movements, you also bring Trump into this. And at the same time, you're going back and forth to the rise of Putin and in the Soviet Union to this kind of fake perception of reality that they do quite well. And you're intimating that the same thing is being done in the United States. There's a lot of questions that come out of that, that sort of need to recreate what reality is and use in this sense the sort of echo chambers of whatever you want to call them, different internet bubbles and news sources, so that people can't really sort for themselves what reality is. One of the disturbing, I think, aspects of your film is that you show when people get these tools, they become even more inward in a way and and almost narcissistic. And I don't know if you want to address that, but I do want to get to how Trump kind of personifies that. Well, I have problems both with Brexit, (laughs) the reaction to Brexit in my country, and the reaction to the election of President Trump in this country. I have problems with the reaction of the liberals to it, because they just say it was because these people are stupid and they were manipulated or the Russians did something evil to them. The real truth is is that over the last 30 years, liberals have retreated in the face of the failures of economic progress in the 1970s into places like cyberspace, Mm -hmm. into a simplified vision of the world, into an acceptance under President Clinton of the rise of finance and the servicing of you through managerial systems. They retreated. And what they didn't see was that actually out in other parts of the country, in the north of my country, in the old industrial areas, people were feeling completely isolated, totally uncertain, frightened, really frightened of the future. And the liberals retreated into this, their own simplified bubble. This is what I was trying to say in the film, gently. And in that sense, they lost touch with reality. And what's happened with Brexit first, which happened just before I put my film out, and subsequently in your presidential election, is that that reality 
came back and it showed itself in a really dramatic form. But because we have retreated so much into a simplified vision of the world, we have no idea of how to deal with it. I mean, if you really do want to change the world, you have to connect with that world. That's power, because those are millions and millions of people who are angry, frightened, and distressed. And yes, some of them may well be racist, some of them may well not be very nice people, but they are part of a society that you need to contact, connect with, and actually offer them something else if you ever really want to change the world. And the thing that really distresses me, and it's in my country as well, is the liberals are retreating into a fury, partly encouraged by Donald Trump himself and mm. by Brexiteers, which actually they keep on saying, no, these people are stupid, these people are stupid. Well, I mean, whether they're stupid or not, that's not the best thing to say if you really want to change the world. Because if you want to change the world, you have to have collective power. And therefore, you've got to get those people on your side. And the, the liberals have sort of frozen. I don't really fully understand it yet because it lacks a human understanding. Yep. I think this is absolutely brilliant. Adam Curtis, I'm urging everybody to run and see hypernormalization. I want to ask you another question related to what you just said, because given that there is this need to create some sort of view that the populist leader, Trump or Brexit, it's actually uh, Theresa May who's the recipient of that, but, <laughs> but not necessarily the representative of it in sort of the right-wing populist forms that we're seeing. But what you've seen since the crisis got worse in 2008 is first the occupation of the squares, the revolts, the demonstrations. And then when those were ignored, this is something else that has to be explored. Then you saw the beginning of new parties outside of the traditional liberal party system or right-wing parties. So you saw Polemos and you see Syriza and you see in the United States, the Bernie Sanders movement, the Corbyn movement in Britain, which is sort of, I'm talking at least on the left, some sort of reaction to the fact, as what you were saying, Adam Curtis, that the liberals have just lost touch and in fact are the ones throughout Europe that have imposed austerity. So given all of that, you're very disturbed by the fact that right now, the left, let's say, is nowhere near power. But I'm very hopeful given the level of resistance we're seeing to absolutely each new move. So it's really hard to say where this is going to go, and I'd like to hear your thoughts. Well, resistance for what? What is the picture of the society that you do want to create as an alternative to this? What the left has not actually confronted is that for 20 or 30 years, whilst grumbling and going, oh dear, all the time, <laughs> they actually went along with the shifts in power that I describe in that film. They did. They cannot deny that. And what is aching at the moment, what people are really hungry for, is an alternative picture, an alternative vision of the future. And really, the problem, I think, with what you call resistance here is that in a way, a lot of it, I'm not saying all of it, but a lot of it is falling into a trap that President Trump is setting for you. Because all he does, he's like a pantomime figure in a theatre, and he comes down to the front and he looks at you, the audience, all the liberals, and says something really bad. And you immediately get on your social media network and type in extremely big capitals, this is outrageous, this is really bad, we must resist, exclamation mark. At which point... He then says to his supporters in Ohio and Pennsylvania, look at their anger. They hate you. At which point he's created this sort of machine of endless fury, of endless anger, in which the liberals, he, and also the traditional supporters out in the heartlands of America and in the north of my country are all locked together. Again, it's a static machine. Well, if you actually look what's happening, 
in America, he is moving into positions of power behind him, behind the scenery, as it <laughs> be. Very traditional, right-wing financial people. Exactly. Who, who are extremely unlikely to allow him to borrow the kind of money that he needs to actually do his sort of Keynesian promise that he came out with when he was first elected. So my suspicion is, is that he is creating a wonderful distraction. It's more than a distraction. It's a sort of iron cage of fury in which we are all engaged and we all react to him. And he just wakes up every morning and says, oh, I'll say something really bad. And that keeps them all locked in rather than trying to actually do two things, connect in a generosity of spirit with those who voted for him, who might have also voted for Bernie Sanders, because a lot of what he was saying sort of connected with those same feelings. And secondly, invent a picture of the future. You can resist as much as you want, just like the Occupy movement resisted and had a very good slogan and got lots of people behind them. But when they actually got to the squares and they looked at each other, they had absolutely no picture of the kind of society they wanted to build. It doesn't have to be a very complicated one, but it just has to be something that can connect emotionally with millions and millions of people outside your little bubbles, because that's the only way you're going to change the world. You change it either through having extreme financial power or large amounts of people behind you, collective power. Otherwise, you're on your own, and you're weak otherwise. And that's the problem. That's my suspicion of a lot of resistance, is that you're actually falling into a trap that's been set for you. Adam Curtis, you have to see his new film called Hypernormalization. I have one question, Adam. Your films are quite critical of the, let's call it, the order that exists or disorder that exists in the world. We don't get them in the U.S. What's the problem with U.S. distribution? Well, I make them for the BBC. I don't know. I mean, you tell me. I mean, what I've always been told is they don't really fit into the sort of accepted templates of the sort of films. I mean, my films aren't exactly what you would call liberal documentaries. They're much more political. I mean, I'm a journalist, basically. Mm. Yet at the same time, they don't quite fit into a traditional political documentary because I make jokes, use lots of music and jump all over the place. So I think they just basically fall at the moment... I mean, in Britain as well, television is quite rigid in its formats. Even Netflix is pretty rigid in its formats. And I just think I fall between the two, and therefore it doesn't. I'm not really bothered because I've noticed that whenever I put a film out on the BBC, it seems to find its way onto YouTube quite quickly. Right. And, of Um, course, maybe we need to invent a new algorithm to get past all of those static systems that you describe. I want to thank you for taking all this time to be with us, Adam Curtis, and congratulate you on your work. Adam Curtis is an award-winning documentary filmmaker and journalist who works for BBC. He's won six BAFTAs. That's the British Academy Award, essentially. His other documentaries include The Century of the South, Power of Nightmares, All Watched by Machines of Loving Grace, and Bitter Lake. Adam Curtis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And here now is a clip from the introduction to Adam Curtis's new documentary, Hypernormalization. We live in a strange time. Extraordinary events keep happening that undermine the stability of our world. Suicide bombs, waves of refugees, Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, even Brexit... Those in control seem unable to deal with. No one has any vision of a different or 
for a better kind of future. This film will tell the story of how we got to this strange place. It is about how over the past 40 years, politicians, financiers and technological utopians, rather than face up to the real complexities of the world, retreated. Instead, they constructed a simpler version of the world in order to hang on to power. And as this fake world grew, all of us went along with it, because the simplicity was reassuring. Even those who thought they were attacking the system, the radicals, the artists, the musicians, and our whole counterculture, actually became part of the trickery, because they too had retreated into the make-believe world, which is why their opposition has no effect and nothing ever changes. But this retreat into a dream world allowed dark and destructive forces to fester and grow outside. Forces that are now returning to pierce the fragile surface of our carefully constructed fake world. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. Dream.